So Art gave me the 12 o'clock spot today because I have a 2 to 6 on-call shift. So hopefully I'll get to spend the rest of the day with you. But I wanted to go over a, cute, a few key um, issues in trauma, some controversies, and the literature behind those controversies. So I thought we'd I'd, um, come up with a lecture called Why We Do What We Do in Trauma. So I'm just going to choose oops, three... Um, three things that are kind of controversial in the, tr in the trauma literature, and one of those being um, pan scanning, why we do computer tomography in our trauma patients based on mechanism, the second being whether or not to use lidocaine in blunt head trauma, and the third being um, we'll just discuss cervical spine clearance in the emergency department. That's mainly for the medical students and uh, the interns because the seniors should be pretty familiar with that. So we'll start with a moderate female trauma. You have a 22-year-old female. She's involved in a 60-mile-an-hour MVC on the 57 freeway. Her vitals look pretty good. She had a positive airbag, a positive seatbelt. The driver, who's in trauma A, is a critical trauma. Um, so she's in trauma B. She's complaining of left elbow pain, neck pain, and a headache. She denies alcohol. She denies lots of consciousness. Her primary survey is within normal limits. She's alert and oriented times three. Her chest x-ray is within normal limits, and her fast exam is normal. Um, Head-to-toe examination for the secondary survey. She has a small cephalohematoma to the left temporal region. She doesn't have any lacerations. She has mi mild midline C-spine tenderness. Her C-collar is maintained. Her chest is completely within normal limits. She doesn't have any tenderness to palpation. Her abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended. She doesn't have a seatbelt sign. She has no tenderness to palpation. Her pelvis is stable. And her extremities, she has an abrasion to the left elbow as well as some swelling. So these are pertinent and positives and negatives. She has, she has a headache. She has, loss of, she has no loss of consciousness. She has a small cephalohematoma. She has a little bit of C-spine tenderness. She has some neck pain. She has a left elbow abrasion and swelling. She denies any abdominal pain, denies any chest pain, and has a normal chest and abdominal exam. She has a normal fast and a normal chest x-ray. So Dr. Mervis is managing the patient, um, and he um, decides on a certain ordering scheme. So what would you guys order if you saw this patient, if you were... Um, the, the senior in this case, what would you order? So your options are a left elbow x-ray, a CT head, C-spine, chest, abdomen, and or pelvis, as well as a, uh, just an x-ray of the cervical spine. So if you were in Dr. Mervis's situation, would you choose A, so raise your hand if you'd choose A, left elbow x-ray, CT head, and C-spine only. Who's for that? We have about seven people. She has a cephalohematoma, some neck pain with some midline C-spine tenderness, and a left elbow abrasion and swelling. She has no tenderness to palpation on her abdomen. She has no tenderness to palpation on her chest. She has a normal fast. It's a 60-mile-an-hour MVC on the, 50, on the 57 freeway, auto versus center divider. The driver in trauma A is a critical trauma. He basically was drunk and just hit into the um, center divider. And just one comment. You already said the chest x-ray is normal. Yes. Wow, <laughs> interesting. Was it a pregnant patient or just, okay, just didn't happen. Okay, so the chest x-ray is normal. Okay, so um, your options, so who goes for A, left elbow x-ray, CTC spine, CT head, okay, the majority of you. Who goes for B, left elbow x-ray and a C spine series only? Okay, C, left elbow x-ray alone. D, left elbow x-ray, CT head, C-spine, abdomen, and pelvis. Dr. Burns. Anybody else? Oh, Rod? M. Burns. Oh, Burns. Changing my answer. <laughs> everyone suddenly, everyone's D. 
or E, left elbow x-ray, CT head, C-spine, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. We have four people that pan scanned. All right. So Brian Buckbird says, Mervis, go ahead and order the pan scan. Get me a left, um, left x-ray as well, as well as an ortho consult. So Mervis is like, seriously, we're going to pan scan this lady? She doesn't have any abdominal pain. Um, so where's the evidence with this? Why are these trauma surgeons pan scanning based on mechanism? Is there any evidence behind it, or are they just trying to irradiate all our patients? So, what, irradiate, option B. So this is actually a really interesting article. This is by Aridi Tolu. Um, she is at um, UCLA Medical Center. She basically did a six-month period where she included all blunt trauma activations not immediately taken to the OR. So relatively, quote-unquote, stable. Um, so what she did is she gave a form to the emergency physician and she gave a form to the trauma physician. She said, fill this out. There's some CTs being ordered. So for example, there's a trauma happens. The trauma scene team tells Angie, hey, go ahead and order a pan scan. Or Mervis says, hey, go ahead and order this. Um, and then this research assistant, this M wrapper, comes by and gives the trauma surgeon a form and gives the emergency physician a form and says, do you A, think that these CTs are unsupported? There's no evidence of injury, and I don't think that there's going to be any injury. Or do you B, say, yes, these CTs are supported. There's definitely um, some signs of symptoms of injuries to the body part, so I think that this, the CTs that they've ordered today are, are um, absolutely indicated. C, there's sufficient risk of injury, although the patient doesn't really have any signs or symptoms of injury. I'm going to scan based on that mechanism. Or, for, or D, I'm going to do a CT because I can't follow the clinical exam. In other words, this patient's going to the OR for a washout of their elbow. They had a pretty significant mechanism. I'm going to do the CT because I can't follow this clinical exam and I don't want them to cramp in the OR. So, I believe they did. I, yes, I, they, I believe they had the entire primary and secondary survey. So, this is what happened. So, about 23% of the scans, or sorry, 28% of the scans, the emergency physician said, these are absolutely not indicated. And obviously, 1% of the scans, the trauma surgeons, because they're the ones that are probably ordering the scans. So only about 1% of the scans did they think were indicated. 28% of the scans we thought were absolutely not indicated. These are ridiculous scans. So what happened? So they looked at these. So of those 28% of the scans, they looked at them and they saw how many injuries were involved in these scans. And they found that 8% of the CT heads, 4% of the CT necks, 28% of the CT chests, and 14% of the CT abdomen and pelvis that the emergency physicians thought were unreasonable ended up having injuries. What were these injuries? Were they just some rib fractures? Were they actually clinically significant? Well, in the head, there were some intracranial hemorrhages. There were some contusions. There were not any subdural or epidural hematomas, so that's good. The neck, there were some transverse and spinous process fractures, but there's no, me there's no mention of whether this is ne nexus criteria or Canadian C-spine or anything like that. So I think you can take that data with a grain of salt. And with chest, there was some lung contusions, laceration, there were some hemonumos, there were some clavicle fractures, scapular fractures, spine fractures. However, there were not any aortic injuries, which is what we're really looking for when we're doing a CT of the chest. Lacerations and contusions are, are secondary. Um, they're important to know about, but traumatic aortic injury is really why we do the CT chest and trauma. And then in the abdomen and pelvis, they found of those 14% of injuries, there were a couple splenic lacerations, a couple liver lacerations, some kidney injury, some small bowel injuries, and some pelvic fractures. So, so basically, this is just saying we're the worst doctors ever. We're trying to kill our patients when originally we thought that the trauma surgeons are the worst doctors ever, and they're trying to irradiate all their patients. But seriously, about 16% of the scans that we felt were unjustified 
ended up having some significant injuries. There's some question of whether these are significant. There weren't any aortic injuries. There weren't any um, subdurals. There weren't any epidurals. There weren't any splenic lacerations that were immediately taken to the operating room. Um, two required some sort of intervention. One was platelets for an intracranial hemorrhage. and I forget what the other intervention is. But the majority of these patients had some sort of change in their care. In other words, they went to the ICU rather than the floor. They went to the floor rather than going home. Um, so 16% of these scans that we feel are unjustified actually had some significance. So have there been any other data? Well, actually, yes. There was a second study by Salem, and these are the USC guys. So anything that UCLA does, USC has to do better. Um, and this was Ali Salem at USC. He's a trauma surgeon. Um, and he, he basically looked at all hemodynamically stable patients with a um, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. So he was basically saying it's reasonable to scan a hemodynamically stable patient who has an abnormal physical exam. So in, in other words, everyone's going to scan someone that was involved in an MBC that's having some abdominal pain. So there's no question about that. The second is someone who's drunk, you can't evaluate them, you can't rely on their physical exam. Yes, you're probably going to scan them too. But this question that we have is these patients... is these patients that have, that are awake, they're clinically evaluable, but they have a significant mechanism. So these patients that we're talking about, they have a normal abdominal exam, a normal chest exam, they're awake, alert, and oriented. What do we do with these people that have a significant mechanism? So that's what he did a study on. So he included patients that had no visible evidence of chest or abdominal trauma, patients that were hemodynamically stable, and they either had to have a normal abdominal exam or they had to be unevaluable, secondary to a depressed level of consciousness. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. And they had to have a, a significant mechanism of injury. So what's the significant mechanism of injury? Any motor vehicle collision greater than 35 miles an hour, falls greater than 15 feet, automobile versus peds where the pedestrian goes more than 10 feet, um, or assaulted with a depressed level of um, consciousness. And he looked at this. And he looked at the chest results for these people. And so this column right here is the people that were unevaluable. I don't really care about those because we're probably going to end up scanning those patients the majority of the time. But the mechanism people is the one that I really care about. And so these people that were only based, scanned based on mechanism, in other words, they have a normal abdominal exam, a normal chest exam, um, what happened in those patients, and 19.6% of the time they had some sort of injury, either rib fractures, hemonumos, lung contusions, suspected or aortic injury only in 0.2%. That person actually didn't end up having an aortic injury. This is after chest x-ray being normal? This is, so most of them had a normal chest x-ray. Actually, some of those did have an abnormal chest x-ray. So these are just based on normal physical exam. So it's not, so this is, so this is that data that you're, that you're asking about. So the patient, the percentage of patients that had a normal chest x-ray but an abnormal um, CT was 7.9%. But that's mixed among mechanism and unevaluable patients. So, um, and then this is the abdominal data. So these are people that had a normal abdominal exam. 7.1% um, of them had some sort of injury. So if you look at it, though, I mean, pretty much less than 1% of everybody has some sort of injury. So it's less than 1% have a grade 4 liver laceration, less than 1% have a grade 3 liver laceration, less than 1% have a grade 4 or 5 splenic lacerations, grade 3 splenic lacerations, those are the ones that you're going to be managing in the operating room. Kidney injury is about 1%, and then possible hollow viscous injury is 3.4%. So 
while each of those individually is about less than 1%, it does make up about 7.1% of patients. So 7.1% of patients who were scanned based on mechanism alone, who had a normal abdominal exam, a normal chest exam, and were evaluable because they were alert and oriented times four, ended up having 7.1% of them ended up having injuries. So um, their management was changed 50% of the, 57% of the time. And the contrary was true too. 17% of the time, their management was changed based on a normal um, CT. So they were able to send people home, someone that they originally thought they were going to be able to, um, going to have to admit, ended up being able to go home based on a... Remember, normal CT does not rule out certain... Correct, yes. Exactly, yeah, so you still have to do, if your patient's still having abdominal pain and things like that, you need to do serial exams and um, potentially, um, especially if they have a seatbelt sign. Okay, so what's the... Sub yes, Dr. Burns. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> What's that? Okay. Okay. So 20% um, of the CT chest had abnormal um, um, exams based on mechanism alone, 7% of the CT abdomen pelvis, and then 4% of the CT abdomen pelvis resulted in some sort of change of plans. These were normal everything. The other data, their head CT data and their neck CT data, I think we can take with a grain of salt because there's no mention of whether or not these patients had headaches or loss of consciousness or, or anything like that. So, Dr. Burns, trash. Yeah, we, we discussed this at Journal Club, um, and if Dr. Langhoff was here to say this is total rubbish. Okay. It's been trashed by the Animal Emergency Medicine editorial commentary. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we do this, we're going to kill people from cancer in 20 years uh -huh. because they actually, they didn't, didn't really make conclusions based on their inclusion, based on their study. Mm -hmm. And some of the patients were never examined. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really okay. a prospective study because they, they, you know, at the USC, they do retrospective prospective studies. Mm -hmm. That means that they, they don't know what they're going to study, so they collect all the data for years. Okay. They go back and say, oh, they did a prospective because we collected all the data gotcha. before we're going to study it. So a lot of the patients probably weren't examined very well. Okay. So you should uh, read that editorial that came out about a year later in the Okay. Saying how doing this is going to kill people mm -hmm. uh, more than save them from finding an injury. Okay. Also, the, the injuries they found often were the change in management was often minimal. Right. Really it was just a change in level of care. Remember the two things about the two studies you talked about. Mm -hmm. We say at Journal Club, you really shouldn't change your practice based on a single center study. Right. How good it is or how bad it is. Right, right, right. Of course. Okay. Just interesting ideas. Yes, these are, this is why trauma surgeons are scanning these patients. And so you should be familiar with the literature behind why trauma surgeons are scanning. So it's not just, they didn't just pull it out of nowhere. I think that there is, you know, some data to support it. Yes, Dr. Kane. Okay. Well, first of all, compliments on your choice of uh, topic areas. Very, very good choices. And then a little disclaimer about the Animal Emergency Right. And maybe if they say it changed management by having you admit them to the ICU, but they didn't really need to be admitted right. to the ICU, you know, you've got to weigh all that. Right. And the other thing is when you order a test, you're responsible for following up the results of that test. And we're often going to find incidental findings like cancer or something else. And now you've seen this thing on CT that you probably didn't need to order at all, and you've got to arrange 
change follow-up for that patient or if they get lost to follow-up, you're responsible for it. So that's another issue. Mm -hmm. Another one which we're well aware of is resource utilization. How many times have we been sitting there going, oh, when's this person going to get their scan? He's waiting and waiting and waiting because there's so many other people getting scans. So if you're scanning all these people that don't need it, and maybe you have someone who needs it, that's an issue. And then, as Dr. Burns mentioned, the radiation exposure, that's a little bit controversial, but certainly we don't want to be scanning and rescanning people uh, multiple times. And then the last thing I'll mention is, um, I know Art Students and Journal watch articles later, and I don't think this one is published yet, but I just reviewed an article that questioned the whole mechanism of injury in terms of whether these are critical trauma or being a trauma center of patients, and some of that may be changing in the future, just so you know some of the data they used for these studies may not bear out in the future. Gotcha. Um, okay, so uh, the other data, so we said that the CT had a neck, we can't really say anything from that. Okay, and then for your back pocket, these rapid deceleration mechanisms, I want you to know why the trauma team is scanning any patient that has a 60 mile an hour to stopping, why they're scanning the chest on these patients. And this is based on two studies, one of them out of USC, the Dimitriades data. And this was a study um, by Dimitriades, and they basically found an 8% incident of traumatic aortic injury when there was a high-speed deceleration mechanism. And their high-speed deceleration mechanism was greater than 35 miles an hour, um, basically car accident, um, a pedestrian thrown more than three feet in an auto versus peds, and a fall from greater than 15 feet. Exarch Dickelos did a similar study, I don't know how to pronounce his name, um, sounds good enough. He had found a 2% incidence of TII, but he had much um, he had much smaller, or much broader inclusion criteria, and that was motor vehicle collisions greater than 10 miles an hour, falls from heights greater than 5 feet. This data, however, some of it's quote-unquote prospective, kind of how Dr. Burns was alluding to the prospective. Um, but there's no mention of whether or not these patients had chest pain. There's no mention of whether or not they had an abnormal chest exam. So this is, but these are the data that your trauma surgeons are going to be quoting when they're talking about how you need to get a CT angio of the chest to rule out traumatic aortic injury for someone who was going 60 miles an hour and then all of a sudden slammed into the center divider. So this, these are the studies that they're going to be quoting. Um, there, Rob Rodriguez out of Rob Rodriguez out of US, um, UCSF is actually doing a study right now with Langdorf the chest x-ray study, he just added on and got a grant for the CT chest portion of that study, and they're trying to come up with a decision rule for patients that were involved in these high-speed 60-mile-an-hour rapid deceleration mechanisms. If they have a normal chest, um, chest x-ray, if they have a normal clinical exam, if they don't have any chest pain or chest tenderness, can we then not do the CT angio of the chest? So these four articles, there's one from you, there's you know two from USC, one from UCLA. I'm not sure where, do you know where XR? Dictylosis. I think he's Michigan or something like that. Um, so these are the studies that your trauma surgeons are going to be quoting. But like Dr. Burns and Dr. Koenig said, they, there was no incidence of traumatic aortic injury in any of these CT chests, and that's why we're doing CT chests, is to rule out traumatic aortic injury. Lung contusions and things like that are important. We can catch a lot of those on chest x-ray and clinical exam and observation, doing a second chest x-ray um, and things like that. But the traumatic aortic injury is the key thing that we don't want to miss and that's why we do CT chest. Same thing with the abdomen and pelvis. The majority of those scans did have a less than 1% incidence of splenic injuries and things like that. None of those patients were taken to the operating room for their splenic injuries. So really how important is it that we find those injuries? I think that they're important to know about, 
um, but it doesn't you're not going to necessarily kill someone by sending them home. But these are, this is the data that the trauma surgeons are quoting when they're going to be choosing these studies just so that you're aware of them. And you can make your own decisions based on this literature and based on your findings um, in your clinical exam. So, you so I certainly think it's prudent that someone who has a mechanism like this, I think this should tell us, someone that has a mechanism like this, maybe we should abs them for six hours and do serial abdominal exams, make sure they don't develop abdominal pain. And if they, in fact, don't develop any abdominal pain for that entire six-hour period, I would argue that it's probably unlikely that these patients have, um, have a splenic laceration or something like that. Okay. Are you going to talk about ultrasound at all? I'm not going to talk about ultrasound at all. So just Yes, definitely. And ultrasound has a higher sensitivity in our adult population than it does in our pediatric population, but it's definitely a, um, for the FAST exam, that is. But, and it's definitely an important tool. So you return to trauma A, so while you're taking your sweet time discussing the literature with Dr. Buckberg, um, you realize that no one's taking care of his, her boyfriend, who's in trauma A, and he's actually um, the critical trauma, so let's go see him. So it's a 24-year-old male. He's a critical trauma. He had the same mechanism, 65 mile an hour versus the center divider. He was drinking. It was nice of him to drive his girlfriend home when she was sober. Um, has a seatbelt, has an airbag. She, he is altered and posturing. Um, so his heart rate's 110, blood pressure 105. His respiratory rate is 6. He's snoring. He's 95% um, on 15 liters of oxygen. So Schultz says, intubate this guy, Miloshek. <laughs> and then Miloshek says, okay, Dr. Schultz. <laughs> But what about the lidocaine? Um, so, <laughs> Facebook. Um, so, to lidocaine or not to lidocaine? So, how many of you guys think we should be giving lidocaine? Do you think it's A, pretty important, B, it depends, but I'll do it most of the time, C, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll use it occasionally, or D, no way, I hate that stuff. So. A, yes, I use lidocaine all the time for these severe head injuries. Anyone? Okay. B, it depends. I'll do it most of the time. Okay, about four of you. Um, C, yeah, sure, I'll use it occasionally. Okay, four of you. And D, no way, that stuff is lame. Okay, all right. The medical students think it's lame. Um, <laughs> okay, excellent. So let's talk about the literature behind lidocaine and why we use it in head injury. And there was this study, and this was by Don again, and this was one of the initial studies. Um, and it was a study in the ICU, and they basically gave some people lidocaine. They gave another group just normal saline. And they said um, when they do endotracheal suctioning, um, they expect this rise in intracranial pressure. Um, is there a decreased rise in intracranial pressure from the suctioning? So there were 10 patients in each group. It was a very large study. Um, 10 patients in the lidocaine group, 10 patients in the placebo group. And they found that the ICP rose from 10 to 22 in the lidocaine group and from 16 to 27 in the saline group. So that is, that's the major hallmark article that we use to give lidocaine. Um, there's a couple more. I'll go over those. But you can, they had ventriculostomies. Yeah, they had ventriculostomies. Of these ones, they were um, head injury patients. How does that help Oh, why the mechanism? Yeah. So it's. Evaluate the rise in intracranial pressure that occurs when you put the laryngoscope in there and start touching around the, the airway. 
So it blunts that, and then there's this question of a mechanism for whether it stabilizes the um, intracranial cells themselves, um, whether like because it's a sodium channel blockade, um, and then some of it they don't know why why they think it works or not. Yes. This is these are people that are being sectioned, so they're in the ICU. They've got a ventric in. No, these are not ED patients. These are this is ICU patients. They've got a ventric in. They're getting sectioned. So they did. Exactly. So they got sectioned. So there are two groups, 10 in each group. Yes, Pam? Is sectioning a good alternative to look at in the study? Can we look at the So, I mean, it's a great question. It's not the same thing as intubating, obviously, but it does put, it does stimulate the nerves in the posterior oropharynx. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's somewhat analogous. If the, this had extremely robust data, I might. Um, believe it a little bit more, but I, I would argue that the data itself isn't very robust. You're going from already, the placebo group, placebo group started at 16, so we can argue that they had worse head injuries than the, than the other group that started at 10. So we can argue that they were a little bit more prone to raising their intracranial pressure in the first place. So, um, so that's that study. And they were saying that the ICP of 10 and 16 is not significant, that difference. They're saying that the difference between the... 0.2 and 27. From 10 to 22 and 16 to 27, they're saying that the difference is significant. So, in other words, the lidocaine group looks like it went up from 10 to 22, so it went up 12 more. And yeah, it was. Other one went up from 16 to 27, so it went up 11. So that's why I'm asking: Are they saying when they compared the two groups that the lidocaine group at ICP is 10 is the same as the placebo group at a ICP of 16? They're saying those two groups' starting point are the same. No, the p-value, well, I'm not sure what the p-value for that is. The p-value of this difference is the difference of 12 versus 11, is what they're saying has a p-value of less than 0.02. That article was published so old, since so old in 1980. Right. Gotcha. And they didn't catch it back then. And right. Looked at it so right. That's sort of strange that right. it's strange. Right. Exactly. I agree. So this is this is your data. Burns agrees with me. Burns agrees with you, oh. Mervis. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is your data for lidocaine. Um, <laughs> Join the club. This is another article people quote. This is a Bedford article. He took patients that were in the operating room for an intracranial mass. So in other words, they were in the operating room, not being intubated. They were in the operating room already intubated. Um, and sometimes people get a rise in their ICP during um, scalp incision for their neurosurgery. And so they gave people a lidocaine bolus and a thiopental bolus. And they saw, they didn't compare it to placebo, but they basically said, okay, their intracranial pressure went up. And then after we gave the lidocaine, it went down. Same thing with the th thiopental. The only problem is, is that the arterial pressure went down with the thiopental too. But this was not compared to placebo. But that's a huge problem because the worst thing you can do in a severely head injured patient is lower your systemic blood pressure because their uh, cerebral protective mechanisms are no longer working and they're dependent on their systemic blood pressure to use their brain. So thiopental is good for protecting your brain, but if you have someone who's got other things besides a head injury, 
Exactly. So, and they're, so, so they're saying that thiopental is awful because it drops our blood pressure, and lidocaine is so awesome because it doesn't um, drop the blood pressure, and it also decreases the intracranial pressure similarly. But they did not compare this to placebo, so who knows? The intracranial pressure might have just gone down two minutes after the scalp incision. Anyway, we'll never know because um, we weren't there. Another study, Bedford, this was um, 20 patients, and I couldn't get the actual article for this because it's published like in Berlin, Germany, some sort of book. Um, so I, I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, but anyway, there were 20 patients. This was actually something that's applicable to the ED, but I can't even find the data. 20 patients, lidocaine versus placebo, intubating. They saw a 12 millimeter um, difference between those groups. So in other words, the lidocaine group went up 12 millimeters less than the placebo group did. But there were 10 patients in each group. I have no idea what the p-values are. I have no idea what their methods were. This is another study we quote from which we cannot find the data. <laughs> and lastly, there's a one out of um, India where they call it lagnocaine, which I really like. Um, <laughs> BC's people. Um, so they um, basically randomized people to group one, group two, group three. Um, this was also an intra, this was an intraoperative env environment where the um, the pressure was raising in intraoperatively, not endotracheally. Groups two and three had the largest fall in intracranial pressure after the 1.5 meg per keg bolus. That was 27% and 30% respectively. So this was intra-op, not intubation. And that is the world's literature on lidocaine. Um, so, <laughs> so there are no robust studies to support the use of lidocaine. Um, timing is necessary two to three minutes prior. And there's some question of whether lidocaine causes any harm. Um, certainly there have been studies that have shown that lidocaine does cause a decrease in mean arterial pressure. We know that mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure is your cerebral perfusion pressure. We know that cerebral perfusion pressure is one of the most important things um, in head injur injured patients. Um, additionally, uh, we um, so we don't know if it, it causes any harm. We want to keep the arterial pressure up. Um, and then we don't know if it, it causes any effect. So. I think one dose of lidocaine is pretty unlikely to cause harm. And that's one of the things you need to ask yourself when you're looking at the methodology. If it's something that causes harm, mm -hmm. you're looking at the benefit versus the risk, and there's risk, that's completely different than something that's probably fine in terms of risk, very, very low risk. But this timing thing is important, too. So if you're going to use it, what I usually do is I'll push it before the paramedics have even moved the patient over from mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and then also, do we, we don't really know if this rise in intracranial pressure that's transient from the intubating itself, whether that has any sort of clinical effect to begin with. So, yes, Dr. Wu. Is there like an ideal map that we should be aiming for? Because I feel like every time I talk to another surgery, they give me a different map. Yeah, I think it's like 80. What, 80? Yes. I, I mean, I don't know. The neurosurgeons will tell you. I think it changes every day. So. It's complicated. 
whether right. it's an isolated head injury or whether you maybe have an uncontrolled source of internal bleeding. Right. Dominant or something like that. Yeah. So they'll let you know. <laughs> yes. Is there better data for peds? Better data for lidocaine and peds? No. It's there's no data in peds. Yeah. So this is this is the data. This is the world's data on lidocaine. There was one other study that looked at, um, uh, there's been a couple studies that have looked at uh, lidocaine through the ET tube. Um, a lot of those have shown that they don't, that it doesn't work and actually causes harm. So, um, so anyway, so that is the world's literature and there's no on lidocaine. This is all ICP. Like this is all ICP. There's absolutely no outcome data. So, I mean, an interesting study, and probably one that you could pass by the IRB would be, We'll take every head injured patient that comes into the emergency department, we'll give them lidocaine versus placebo, and we'll see what their outcomes are um, at six months or whatever. So, I mean, it'd be a very, very um, involved study, but that would, I think, put the, the issue to rest. So, all right. So, Dr. Tromsey. <laughs> so, you have a 30-year-old male involved in a 30-mile-an-hour MVC, um, complaining of arm and neck pain. He um, has been placed in a sea collar by paramedics. He's on the backboard, unlike Dr. Weekman. Um, he's awake and alert. He denies alcohol. He can wiggle his toes. He denies midline C-spine tenderness. Okay. So, does he need C-spine imaging? The patient's awake, alert. He denies alcohol. Can wiggle his toes. He has no. He does not have any midline C-spine tenderness. So, A, go ahead and clear him. B, I would image that C-spine. C, tell me more about his arm pain. So, who says A? Go, no, go ahead and clear him. Anyone? Pam, maybe? No. Okay, B, I would image that C-spine. Okay, C, tell me more about this arm pain. Okay. Tell me about his exam. Me about his exam. Dang it. Stupid. Stupid. Okay. Um, so, for the turns and for the medical students, this is Nexus. This was a study by Jerry Hoffman out of UCLA. This is what we use to clear C-spines. So Nexus basically came up with five. Um, they, did, they basically did a prospective study where they came up with this decision rule, and then they validated it with thousands and thousands of patients. So it's a very robust study. They basically found patients that had no midline C-spine tenderness, no focal neurologic deficit, normal alertness, no intoxication, and no painful distracting injury. You could clear those C-spine. And there were 34,000 patients enrolled. This had a sensitivity of 99%. Um, and it missed eight injuries, but only two of those injuries were clinically significant as defined a priori. And those two, these are all those, the injuries. The two was a 54-year-old male. He had an extension teardrop fracture. He refused the collar, but he was fine at six weeks. Um, and then patient number two had a clavicle fracture and paresthesias. So I'm not quite sure why he was cleared in the first place. Um, but um, so really... No one was harmed by this decision rule when they validated it. So out of 34,000 patients, no one was harmed in clearing their C-spine based on this decision rule. So what's a painful distracting injury, you might ask? Painful distracting injury given to the people that were in the Nexus study, so this was the instructions for them, is a long bone fracture, a visceral injury requiring surgical consultation. So this is kind of funny because you're not going to know that until after your CT scan, usually. Um, and uh, you're usually going to clear your C-collar before your scan because you don't want to put them down on the scanner twice. So a large laceration, degloving injury, or crush injury, large burns, any other injury um, producing functional impairment, an injury, 
any injury thought to have the potential to impair the patient's injury. So if it's a person with a broken toe and they're like screaming, then probably don't clear them versus the person with a broken toe that's like, no, I'm fine, um, that you could probably clear that person. So that's a painful distracting injury. What is altered neurologic function, you may ask? Any GCS less than 15, disoriented to person, place, or thing. This is what I think is funny. Inability to remember three objects at five minutes. I highly doubt the Nexus um, examiners did this for every single patient, and I doubt that our trauma patients could remember three objects at five minutes. They're a little distracted. Um, inappropriate response to external stimuli or any focal neurologic deficit. So that's altered neurologic function. What is intoxication? Uh, hey -oh. <laughs> Uh, recent history of intoxication, <laughs> and then consider for a blood alcohol level of greater than 80, but they cleared most of these people before they knew their BACs. And then what is midline posterior tenderness, any tenderness, um, with direct palpation, or if they wince when you palpate them, even if they say that it doesn't hurt. Um, so that, so those um, were the nexus criteria. So. Just so that you're aware, there's also Canadian C-spine rules. And the Canadian C-spine rules were a study that was around a similar time, and they were competing because Canada always wants to be as awesome as the United States. Um, and they published their data in JAMA, not the New England Journal. Um, and their inclusion criteria were neck pain or people that had some sort of injury above the clavicles. In other words, they've got like a cephalohematoma or something. They are non-ambulatory at the scene or they had a dangerous mechanism of injury. So, or, or, or. So neck pain, or some visible injury, or non-ambulatory, or dangerous mechanism. In other words, they were placed on a C-collar, um, and they were in a car accident. So they have to be alert, and they had to be stable, meaning their blood pressure and respiratory rate was within normal limits. Um, so it basically said that if you have any high-risk feature, you need to get imaged. So a high-risk feature is 65, eight, greater than 65, a dangerous mechanism, or paresthesias in the extremities. So you have to be um, imaged if you have any of those things. If not, is there a low-risk feature? If you have any of these low-risk features, you can be cleared. So your simple rear-end motor vehicle collision, you're sitting in the emergency department, you're ambulatory at any um, time after the accident, you have a delayed onset of injury, or you have absence of midline C-spine tenderness. So any of those, any one single one of those, it's not all five, it's any one of those, um, allows you to clear your spine. And then lastly, so if someone comes to your ED, they're sitting, they're complaining of terrible neck pain, um, you can clear them technically based on this rule. And are they able to rotate 45 degrees to the left and the right? That's how you clear them. And if they're able to do that, then you can clear them. Okay, so hopefully the people that have terrible neck pain that are sitting in your emergency department aren't going to be able to do that, and therefore you have to image them. This has 100% sensitivity, but it had... Um, a smaller incidence of injuries. It only had 151 um, injuries, but there were thousands of patients in this study as well. So um, this is their, this is kind of the cartoon for um, how they clear people. Is any high-risk feature, feature there, age greater than 65, a dangerous mechanism? Paresthesias, yes, they get radiographs. Are any of the low-risk features there? No, then they get radiographed, but if all, of, if any one of them are there, then they go to clearance, which is rotating the neck left and right. So that's what we do in trauma, right? We, we combine nexus with the Canadian C-spine. So we do our nexus criteria, and then we say, okay, move your neck to the left and the right. Are you able to do that? And then we take off your collar. So simple rear-end motor vehicle collision excludes pushed into oncoming traffic, hit by a large bus or truck, a rollover hit by a high-speed vehicle. Uh, and then what's a dangerous mechanism? 
So fall from greater than five stairs, axial load to the head, MBC with an ejection rollover or greater than 100 kilometers per hour, um, any wreck vehicles or bicycle collision. So any of those, you cannot clear them. They get radiography. So, um, so when we're thinking about C-spine, I'd say the majority of the time you're going to use Nexus to clear people, but I would urge you to use caution in your patients that are elderly. So your patients, I wouldn't say above 65, but I mean, it's, if it, is it an old you know, 65 or is it a young 65? If it's a young 65, I think you can use Nexus, but if it's someone that um, you know, has diabetes and end-stage renal disease and things like that, I would urge you to consider imaging them. Um, even if they do meet all of Nexus. So it's just something to consider. Um, so, yes, Pam, you raise your hand. I was just wondering about isolated head injuries. Um, is there a defining criteria how to um, determine whether it's isolated Meaning isolated head injuries in the Canadian rules or isolated head injuries in general? In like, are there, is there literature to whether we image isolated head, inju head injuries? When do I worry that C-spine is connected to the head and with this mechanism of injury, it's not an isolated head Gotcha. So, I think anytime you have a head injury, you need to worry about a C-spine injury. So, anytime. So, I think if, if they're alert and they meet the, the, the nexus of they're alert and they're oriented and they're able to talk to you and, they, and their head injury isn't so bad that they have a distracting injury, I think you could clear them based on nexus. And call it a, I mean, practically, what I will generally do is if they have a fairly serious mechanism and I'm planning to get a head CT, I'll just get a head and neck CT. But if I'm not planning to get a head CT, say it's a patient who had a car crash but didn't come in as a trauma activation and get all these scans and I've decided not to get a head CT, I might either clear them clinically or if they don't meet the criteria, I'll get plain I think if you have like a six-year-old that falls out of the shopping cart, though, I think you could clear. I mean, so you you don't you want to avoid as much radiation as possible. If it's a 90-year-old that fell and hit their head, I think you just call it a not isolated head injury and you scan their C-spine. Yeah, definitely. So I would encourage you to use Nexus because I, even though it is you're just scanning down, you are imaging the thyroid now, and so that does have an increased um, radiation. So if it's if you're if you can clear based on nexus, I would clear, but consider the Canadian C-spine rules. In other words, if it's someone above the age of 65, I would consider just doing the scan. So, or if it's some crazy mechanism where they like were diving and hit their head at eight feet or something like that, I would say consider just scanning them. So I would say combine the two in your clinical practice. And when people, when people haven't cleared themselves yet, they need to be backboarded until we image the C-spine. So in other words, someone needs to stay on a backboard, or they need to be lying flat while they're in their collar until we have imaging of that C-collar, or of the C-spine that shows that there's not an unstable fracture there. So bending them at the waist can also cause some strain. Yes, Austin. So I have another question then about the evidence for clearing the C-spine after the CT C-spine and header negative the patient still has midline C-spine tenderness. Right. Like, flexax, is it really any good? 
So, um, Dr. Mahadevan from Stanford talks about this a lot. So, when, when we get the CT, we're only ruling out bony fractures. We're not ruling out ligamentous injuries. So, you can still have a ligamentous injury despite having a normal CT neck. The reason that we do a flex X is to look for that instability. And when you're doing a flex X, do not help them. Like, so they need to do it on their own, and they'll stop. If they've got a ligamentous injury and it hurts, they're going to stop and they're not going to put their head down like this and they're not going to put their head back like this. So never ever help someone when, you're, when they're doing a flex X. They need to do all the work themselves. And I, I, Dr. Mahadevan feels, I don't know how the other faculty feel, but, and I feel pretty safe in doing a flex X. If they're able to do it and it's a good film, then I would clear someone based on a flex X. However, the caveat to that is a lot of people with whiplash are not going to be able to do a flex X because they're not going to be able to give you a good flexion extension film. That's when we send people home in a C-collar and have them follow up with their primary care doctor in a week to get the, the flex X once all this swelling and everything has kind of subsided and they can then um, do the flex X better and um, either that or if they're having still persistent neck pain then they'd consider an MRI. We also sometimes MRI people in the emergency department. I'd say that that would be the exception, not the rule. I would MRI someone if they had any focal neurologic deficit, um, so any paresthesias or anything like that. I would not do a flex X on someone that had paresthesias. I'd do an MRI. Um, and then in kids, we do MRIs sometimes just because they can't really cooperate with a flex X, and we don't really want to send a three-year-old home with a C-collar for the next week because they're probably not going to keep it on. So, Yes? Nexus, I think it's anybody above the age of two, I think, right? Does anybody know? I think it's two. What was the question? The age range for Nexus, I think it was two and older, three and older. Yeah. It involved kids. Yeah. It was like anyone that could talk, essentially. And then, but the Canadian C-spine was 16 and older, I believe. So. I find it's very difficult to clear a C-spine in kids because, I mean, when you try to, like, is it hurt or if it's... Right. The good thing about kids, though, I think, is that they're, I mean, they're pretty reliable. If their neck hurts, they're going to hold it still. Like, they're not going to go like this if their neck hurts and they have an unstable C-spine injury. So I think if you've got a kid that you're worried about it and, or it's like a lower, it's like a, you know, like a shopping cart injury, and the kid's like going like this in the emergency department, I don't think you need to image the kid's C-spine. Yeah, I think they're going to hold their neck still if their neck hurts. 